let's jump into our sermon series. We've been studying um, the first couple, the end of the Gospels and then the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. This week we'll finally make that transition to the book of Acts in a, in a series that's following along the passages that are being presented on NBC on Sunday nights in this new miniseries called A.D., and it actually picks up the period of history between the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the birth of the Christian church. It's a fascinating period of history. And tonight, they're actually going to be covering the first one and two chapters, the first two chapters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the same author as the Gospel of Luke. Actually, if you just started reading Luke and you didn't stop and you went right into Acts chapter 1, it would flow as one continuous story. And tonight, they're going to cover um, part of what we're going to read here this morning. So our text for today is found in Acts, which is in the New Testament. happens right after the Gospels. So the Gospels are the biographical account of Jesus' life. Acts is uh, what happened in literally the hours and the weeks and the months right after the resurrection of Jesus. What happened to the apostles when Jesus went back to heaven? What happened to the church? Jesus kind of turned over all of the responsibility to human beings, and he went to heaven. And so we really get to see what happened next with the birth of the church. I'm going to read four verses to you from Acts chapter 2. And then, right after that, we're going to show you a video clip from tonight's, a clip that's been made available to us from tonight's episode of the AD series to see how maybe this might have happened. So let me read you from Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Can I just pause there for a second? This is the only time in history that this has ever happened. All the Christians in the entire world were in one place at one time. So I, I, we can't repeat this. This just happened once. All the Christian times were, were in one place at one time. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave him this ability. The title of this morning's message is The Work of the Holy Spirit. What does he actually do? What is his job description? What work does the Holy Spirit do? And, and, and one of the pivotal passages in the New Testament happens here in Acts chapter 2. So I want to invite you just for, you know, clips about a little over two minutes long, I want to invite you to, to kind of watch a little bit of a clip of how this might have happened on the day of Pentecost.
about this particular perspective or possibility, and let's just be honest, there's, you know, I know some, sometimes I get a little apprehensive about a biblical movie or a biblical, you know, because, you know, you're always, gonna, the producer's always going to take some kind of creative license, and they're going to have to kind of present it in a way, and truth be told, every sermon is creative license. Anytime any one of us tries to teach the Bible, we're sharing a verse with someone, we're doing the best that we can to try and explain it in our own terms. Um, and I realize that we don't have a verse in the Bible that says the moment this happened, Peter says, okay, let's go spread the word. But you have to understand, Jesus, these guys were pretty enthusiastic about going and telling everyone about Jesus. And he said, don't do it yet. He said, wait first. And when have you ever known Jesus to look in the eyes of someone excited about doing his work and saying, hold on, wait. Especially these guys, because these guys always waited. They never went and did anything. But now all of a sudden, they're excited, they're motivated, they've seen the resurrected Christ, they've had 40 days of proof, they want to go tell everybody about Jesus. But he says, wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit, and then go and tell everybody about me. He didn't say, go repeat my teaching, he said, go tell them about me. And so it's, I think, is absolutely consistent with what actually happened for Peter to finally step up and say, this is what we've been waiting for for like eight days in this room. This is what we've been waiting for to happen. He said, Something would happen. They didn't know exactly what they were waiting for, but that was pretty obvious that it was... God is good at being obvious when we need him to be obvious, and he was very obvious to them. So um, what I want to talk to you about this morning is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, This week in the AD series, you will watch the arrival of the Holy Spirit just like you did at Pentecost, but I want you to know something. I think there, there's a little bit, especially in Pentecostal churches, what I mean by that, churches who believe that this promised Holy Spirit is still active and available today for all believers. In a Pentecostal church, sometimes we take this verse and say, this is when the Holy Spirit started working. It started right there in the upper room. That's not true. The Holy Spirit has always been working. In fact, if you went to the front cover of your Bible and you opened it up, you'd only read a couple sentences before you'd already see the Holy Spirit working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. And when God spoke and said, let there be light, you know he was speaking to? He was speaking to the Holy Spirit. God spoke it and the Holy Spirit executed it. God gave the instruction, the Holy Spirit went and did it. They were working in conjunction from the very beginning. All through the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit was active. He came upon judges, he came upon prophets, he came upon kings. He was active in Jesus' life. If you read the account of how Jesus was born, it says the Holy Spirit overcame Mary. And it was the Holy Spirit's power who caused Jesus to be conceived in her womb. When Jesus was baptized in water, before the day of Pentecost, 
we see the heavens open and we hear an audible voice from God and we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and land upon Jesus. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus himself constantly gave credit to the Holy Spirit for his power to do miracles and teach. He said, the Holy Spirit is upon me to preach the good news, to heal sick, to bind up brokenhearted. The Holy Spirit has been active since before recorded time even began. Then Jesus says this after he's raised from the dead. Jesus, in Acts 1.8, it says, And after the resurrection, Jesus promised his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I want you to know that Jesus kept his promise. He kept his promise. It didn't happen immediately. They had to wait. But a few days later, he kept, I want you to understand, if God makes promises, he keeps them. We have a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. There is no human being, even on their best day, who has kept every promise they've ever made. That's why it's important for us to read our Bibles and understand, what has God promised you? Because if he's promised it, you can depend on it, you can trust on it, you can build on it. You can file it away and know it's going to happen. This Bible is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises. You know, if, if, you, if you want to be good at keeping promises, don't make many of them. If I tell my son today, hey, listen, next Friday I'm going to take you to Chick-fil-A. I promise you, next Friday morning, he will wake up and he will remind me, Dad, you said today we're going to Chick-fil-A. So I've learned with my son, don't make too many promises. He stores them all away and he remembers them. God's made hundreds of promises and he intends to fulfill every one of them so it's best for us to learn what those promises are so that in times of despair and discouragement and distress and anxiety you can go back to those things and speak them out over your life again and remember those things and say i don't have to take on all the stress and anxiety god has promised and by faith i believe he will make good on everything that he's promised me. Jesus kept his promise when God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the believers gathered in Jerusalem like what we just saw. And the impact of the arrival of the Holy Spirit was so powerful, it galvanized Peter and it gave him and all the other apostles the courage to preach openly. From this point forward, moments later, if you keep reading in Acts, after the video stopped, Peter stands up with the others on one of the most crowded days of Jerusalem in the same area where just 50 days earlier, or 40 days earlier, 50 days earlier, they had crucified Jesus. He stands up in front of the same people and says, this man you crucified was in fact the son of God who came there. He preaches the most powerful evangelistic sermon recorded in the entire Bible and 3,000 people get saved on the spot. In the middle of the street, in the middle of a festival, this is what happens. And this is the same guy, Peter, who a month and a half earlier was too embarrassed and afraid and ashamed to even publicly identify with Jesus. You see the radical transformation in his life of the power of the Holy Spirit? It changed everything about who he was and the confidence and the courage and the boldness that he had to represent Jesus to a world that was hostile towards Christianity. It changed them. And it actually resulted in a great revival that you can read about later on in Acts chapter 2. And a great missions, missions movement that took the gospel. Keep in mind, all the Christians in the world were in Jerusalem at this time. And after this moment, it started a great missions movement that spread the gospel the whole way from Jerusalem to Rome. And over the centuries, from Rome, across the seas, and eventually over here to us, to you this morning. And it all started here. So it's a powerful period of history. So here's the big idea. 
Big idea, this is in your notes. If you have your sermon notes, you can open up, you can follow along with me. The big idea is that the Holy Spirit has always been working, but his work is not random or aimless. He has a specific job to do. The Holy Spirit's always been working. It didn't just start at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's always been working, but it's not just been random. It's not just been mystical. I know sometimes we, and sometimes by nature, this whole trying to understand an invisible God thing, there is a mystery to it. The Bible uses the word mystery. We sang it earlier. What a marvelous mystery. Some of it our finite mind can't wrap around. But I want you to understand the Bible is very specific about the Holy Spirit. And he's not, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he. The Holy Spirit has had a specific mission, a specific job to do. And so this morning, we kind of just want to look at the Holy Spirit's job description, if I could use it that way, the work that he does. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are a couple of the primary specific things he's supposed to do. I don't know, how many of you actually have at your job for yourself a job description? How many of you have a written job description? How many of you say, I have a job, but I've never been given a written job description? Okay, I, I, I'm in that bucket. I'm, just go pastor the church. Just go whatever that looks like. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, you know, what do you do all week? And we see you on Sunday, you know, we know you get up there and talk, you know, try and keep us awake for a little while. But what do you do? And, you know, I, you know sometimes I think down, I was like, man, I do a lot of things over a lot of hours. But it's not really on a job description. Well, whatever needs to be done. What, you know, I pretty much offer 24-7 spiritual leadership to anybody who comes to this church. And so, I mean, it, it, it involves a lot of different things. You know, I don't have a specific job description. Sometimes I wish I did have one because if you have a job description, you can say no to things. That's not in the job description. You know, that's, sorry, that's not in there. I don't, I don't feel like doing counseling today. It's after 10 o'clock. I don't do counseling. Now, you can't have an emergency till 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. You can't do that, you know. Holy Spirit doesn't have necessarily a written job description in Microsoft Word. Times New Roman 12-point font with little bullets and things. And though it makes me happy, he doesn't have one of those. But the Bible does teach us some specific things that he does. And, you know, a lot of times people want the XYZs of Christianity. But sometimes we need to go back and talk about the ABCs. The ABCs are very important. So these are just kind of the ABCs of the Holy Spirit. Let me offer you a few things. Number one, and this is his primary job. And this is is extremely important. Um, The Holy Spirit's primary responsibility is to exalt Jesus. The Holy Spirit's primary responsibility, and you have to listen to this carefully, especially those of us that have, uh, would, would, would say, you know, I'm, I, I've had most of my religious and Christian experience has been Pentecostal. The Holy Spirit's job was never to steal the show from Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job was never for us to be so enamored with gifts and what he does and these phenomenal things that he does and just be enamored with the gifts and the working and the phenomenon. His whole responsibility is to be an arrow that points people's attention to Jesus Christ. That's been his job. The John, you know, Jesus tells us through the gospel writer John, I'll read two verses that are kind of merged together from chapter 15 and chapter 16. Here's what Jesus says. But I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. He will bring me, meaning Jesus, he will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. You see, the Holy Spirit is not an independent contractor. He does what Jesus wants him to do. He says what Jesus wants him to say. They work together in conjunction. They are, they're a team. They're not all doing it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they don't have these team meetings where they sit down and have these knock-down, drag-out fights. They're in agreement. 
But the Holy Spirit has a specific role. And his role is always to exalt Jesus. It's his first and primary work, the number one item on his job description. It is the work about which he is always most concerned. He's most concerned with pointing people's attention to Jesus. In your life and in my life, anytime the Holy Spirit is active, he's trying to draw you and I closer to Jesus, to make Jesus more tangible to us, to make our senses more aware and convinced of who Jesus is. That's his whole responsibility. Everything else the Spirit does connects with this primary task. The problem is that you and I, if we were very honest, that's not number one in most of the way that we live. Most of us aren't cognizant of the fact that my job is to draw people's attention to Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get it backwards and we make it all about us, especially in Christian circles and especially in Pentecostal churches. We get enamored with what Paul writes about some specific gifts of the Spirit. Now, this is a whole other teaching in and of itself. I don't want to go way far there, but I recognize this morning that most of us here are pretty unfamiliar with Pentecost or being a Pentecostal church or a church that believes in what that is. Very simply, a Pentecostal church believes that this promise that Jesus said, I'll pour out my Holy Spirit upon you, We believe that that wasn't just for the 120 in the the upper room. We believe what Peter said a few verses later. He said, this promise is for you and your children's children and their children and for all who are far off, that anybody who wants to can have the Holy Spirit in their life. And Paul writes about it more later. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he brings a gift or gifts along with him. And he decides what type of gift he wants to give. And there's all kinds of different gifts listed in the Bible. So, you know, it's something like teaching and and different kinds of ministry and hospitality and giving and this. and, And then there's some other ones that, Gifts of healing and gifts of prophecy and gifts of speaking in tongues with the interpretation in tongues. And sometimes what happens is when you start to recognize what gift God might have given you to use, we start making it all about us. We like when God gives us the gift of teaching and we get to teach and people come up and say, you're such a great teacher. That goes to your head pretty quick. People say to me before, pastor must be pretty heady. You know, 200 people come and listen to you talk every week. I said, look, my, I'm not arrogant enough to think that you all get up early on Sunday morning and rearrange your schedules just to come and hear a man talk. First of all, it is a gift from God. It is not, that is not me. That is a gift that God gave me that he uses through me, and you have a gift, and I have gifts. The problem is sometimes we feel like if we didn't see a particular gift that we like operating on a Sunday morning, we go away and say, well, the Spirit wasn't there this morning. Or... By translation, if I call everybody to the altar and say, I believe that we want to pray for people who are sick today to be healed, while people going home, we need this every week. By God, we finally hit it right on the mark. The idea is that the Holy Spirit doesn't want us going home talking about the gifts. He wants us going home talking about Jesus. And whether Jesus decides that today he's going to connect with us through his Holy Spirit, through teaching or through worship or through prayer, or through the use of a different kind of a gift. Who's to say but the Holy Spirit? The idea is that the Holy Spirit's main responsibility is to point people's attention to Jesus. The reason why, he, he, the reason why God gives us the gifts of healing to be able to use is not just so our bodies can get better, because eventually my body, if Jesus doesn't come and take me, eventually something's going to take my body. And I will be healed. I'll just get a new body in heaven, and then I won't have to worry about this old stuff I deal with anymore. But the reality is this. When the Holy Spirit does that, you know what he's trying to do? To do two things, to strengthen the Christians and galvanize our faith and say, yes, that is our God, that's Him that's doing it. He's the one who heals, not, oh, look at that pastor up there, he's wonderful. I just want to go up and touch him and hope it rubs off on me. Hogwash. It's not what this is about. The other thing that he does is he does it as a sign for people who are like, I'm pretty skeptical. 
I'm pretty skeptical. I don't know if this God is real or not. Well, you watch someone who had a cast on their leg walk up front and God heals them and they start to walk. You have some pretty serious thinking you're going to have to do about whether this God is real or not. Unfortunately, because we like the gift so much, we also make a market for people who want to fake it and sensationalize it. We've got so much corruption out there that the genuine, everybody's skeptical of the genuine, even if they do believe in the Holy Spirit. The idea was never to make it all about the sideshow. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. So I do believe, absolutely believe, in all of the gifts of the Spirit, and I believe that they're for today, but I believe they're for two specific purposes, to strengthen our faith that believe in Jesus and to be a sign for people who don't. And if it's not those things, if it's not drawing attention to Jesus, it is out of order. It's out of order, and we have to call it that way. The Holy Spirit's main responsibility is to exalt Jesus. It was his main mission. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, look right out of the gate. Peter, in the upper room, and all the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, they now have the supernatural ability to spontaneously and perfectly speak a language they neither studied nor memorized. That's pretty cool. And he stands up in the window and he starts to tell people, and what was the topic of Peter's first talk? Was it about his new ability? Was it about how powerful he was? Was it his own personal testimony? What did he talk about? Jesus Christ. And how did people respond? They got saved. And they, some of them, well, they had three responses. This isn't, you know, they had three responses. Anytime the miraculous stuff happens, one of three things happen. People either dismiss it because they're skeptical. Some people say it's already nine in the morning and they're, they're wasted already. Acts chapter two says it. Other people, it says, the Bible says, both amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what is this? What does this mean? So they were confused but they were just amazed enough to kind of follow along with what's going on. And they wondered what it meant. And then there was this other group of people that just said, what do we have to do to have this? You just have to understand that whenever the Holy Spirit starts manifesting the things of Jesus, it demands a response. People either reject it, they kind of go halfway, they're amazed and perplexed, or they go the whole way in and say, how can I receive it? And it's okay to invite those responses. Everybody has the right to choose what they want to do about Jesus. It's our job just to present him openly. Peter didn't get up and get into the tent. Let me explain to you doctrinally what's going on up here right now. Um, This means that, you know, these tongues are for us to go evangelize or they're just for us to talk to God. He didn't break it all down. He didn't know. It didn't matter. He said, God is up to something. And we just knew that we needed this to tell you about Jesus. And all of a sudden, I've got new courage in me. I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm going to stand up in the window of all places. And you have the same people I was scared of a week ago. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ that you crucified. And they listened and they were changed. You see, people aren't just changed by us just getting up front and spewing a whole bunch of philosophy and teaching. They're changed by having an active relationship with Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And that's every single, someone said to me recently, Pastor, every single Sunday, you, you just, you know, we want something, you know, we want something deeper. Like, have you been here for a while? You know, we want something, you know, we, we need something deeper. You, you're preaching salvation every week, and, and it's great to hear. I was like, absolutely. Every single week for the rest of my life, until the Bible changes, or until Jesus tells me otherwise, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, because Jesus changes lives. That's who we need. If you don't have Jesus, you don't need my 10 steps to be a nicer husband, right? Well, Pastor, we need more practical things. Okay, I'll give you practical things. We're going to talk about Jesus, too. Jesus was a practical guy. He talked to us about all those different kinds of things. But at the end of the day, if you just want 10 steps to be a nicer husband, go down to Barnes and Nobles, buy a self-help book, go home and read it. And you can change you and see how that works out for you. You know what I'd rather you do? I'd rather you have an active relationship with Jesus Christ and I want you to be incrementally one step after another step after another step becoming more like Jesus because as you become like Christ, 
His personality, His love, His grace, things that are unnatural for you will just come up and start to happen. That's why I want you to discover Echo. That's why I want you connected to a growth group. That's why I want you connected to a servant, serving team because in these relationships we have inside Christian family, that's how we learn, that's how we grow, that's how we change. But the Holy Spirit's mission has always been, always been, always been about making Jesus, Jesus Christ, the front and center, the preeminent, the Lord, the supreme one. Everything that he will ever do in your life and my life is not about making you and I feel better because I will tell you something. When the Holy Spirit gives you gifts and you recognize what they are and you start really using them and growing in them, it's going to make some ways and paths for you to do some things and have opportunities to do stuff. It's awesome. It's amazing. But don't ever let it go to your head. I'm speaking prophetically over some of you. Don't let it go to your head. Don't let it go to your head. It's all about Jesus Christ. I know we'd like, wow, Okay. So I, here's another question I get asked. Well, Pastor, I hear you say that, and I, I've seen this evangelist who, who said he had a powerful healing ministry or has a big teaching ministry, and then it turned out later on there's all kinds of corruption in their life. So were all those things fake and phony? Not necessarily. Here's the, here's the thing that we get really mixed up. It is possible, it is possible for God to give you a gift, and the Bible says the gift he gives you is perfect. It's like I can give my son a baseball bat, Perfect baseball bat. He can go out and hit pop flies or he can take it across the street and whack the neighbor kid over the head. That bat has the potential. You know, the bat, it's not a problem with the bat, it's a problem with the kid's heart. Here's what the Bible says. The gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us are perfect, but we're imperfect. So it means it's possible for me to be imperfect and be using a perfect gift. And the gift still works even if my heart's lousy. We would like it better if the gift would just stop working. Like if I, you know, if I had a fight with Kendra this morning that I'd get up front and I just couldn't even put two words together and the notes would fall out of my page and I couldn't preach this morning. The reality is, and I probably have at times in my life, had all kinds of sin and garbage in my heart and still got up to preach or teach or pray for people and they got healed in the midst. God will do, what it tells me is that God will do anything possible to get the right thing to the people that need it, even in spite of us. And that's kind of scary. So don't let it go to your head. Don't think that just because you've got a powerful prayer ministry or you're a good teacher or you're, you're great at this or that or the other thing, that that automatically means your heart's okay. It just means that God's a big God. And he is capable, and thank God he uses imperfect people to do his work or else none of us would be qualified. You just have to be careful and not let it go to your head. You just, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. I don't know who that's for. That wasn't in my notes, but somebody needed to hear that. Let's move on. Holy Spirit, number two. The Holy Spirit convicts us. This is a fun point. On my bucket list is, uh, let's see, I want to see this, I want to see that, I want to have this, I want to have that, and I want to be convicted of something. No, <laughs> it's not really on my bucket list of things. It's not something we get excited about, but hopefully if I do my job right this morning, you can see that this is actually a good thing and an act of love and mercy on God's behalf. Here's what the Bible says in John chapter 16. Here's what Jesus says himself about the Holy Spirit, and what Jesus is a good source of information about the Holy Spirit because they're one. So it's a, he's a, he, we can trust his, his opinion and his facts about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin. But not just that. He says there's three other things, or two other things the Holy Spirit will convict us of. He will convict us of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin and that it refuses to believe in me. You know what he's saying here? He's saying the biggest sin that the Holy Spirit wants to convict in all of us is unbelief in Jesus. He says that's the most important thing. It's not necessarily about the fact that you're trolling stuff on watching things on YouTube you shouldn't be watching, fellas, ladies. 
It's not just about that conversation you had in the hallway with someone else that wasn't productive. It's not about the fact that you're lying about how much income you made and skimping on your taxes even though you don't want to pay them and feel justified in not doing it. It's not about those things first. The biggest sin that we all need to be convicted of is the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. He says that's the most important thing. Everything else rises and falls on that. He says, he says in verse 10, righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more and judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sin. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sin, particularly the sin of unbelief in Jesus. The Spirit wants to reverse the unbelief so that we will trust and believe in Jesus. And I know we don't really get excited about yet another voice in our life to let us know the things that are wrong with us. I have a mirror that does this very well for me. Anytime that I think I'm something, I can look in the mirror and be like, oh my goodness, Father, time has beat me upside the head with a club yet again, you know. (laughs) You know, I I have a three-year-old who's very good at reminding me when I break a rule that's one of his rules. Daddy, you know, Daddy, you're not supposed to be holding your phone while we drive. Thank you, son. Put the phone, (laughs) you know. Like a little Holy Spirit walking around over here. Remind. I, I know most of us feel. I know most of us don't feel like you know. I really want something like that in my life, and it kind of makes the Holy Spirit seem like the bad cop in some ways. Other people say, "Well, what about my conscience? Isn't it my conscience that the conscience?" Boy, this really gets deep. I have to. I can't go too deep in this. Let me give you my opinion, backed up by the Bible. Okay, um, I have to be careful sometimes. I think this is what the Bible teaches. Paul says makes a couple statements about the conscience. He says two things. He said, in one place, Paul says this. He says, I'm sinning, but my conscience is clear. And that's a problem. Another place, he says, you have to watch out for this group of people. Their conscience has been seared as though with a hot iron. In other words, they have been so programmed to believe that sinful behavior is okay culturally that they no longer feel bad when they do it. So if the Holy Spirit and the conscience are the same, that means the Holy Spirit is not absolute. That means that the Holy Spirit can essentially change his mind over time and that he is not objective, he's subjective. In other words, he has a right and a wrong for Brian and a right and a wrong for Stuart and a right and a wrong for Sue and a right and a wrong for Mike and a right and a wrong, right and wrong for Ray and for Joe and everybody else. The Holy Spirit is absolutely, here's what it means. I have a conscience. I was born with one, but conscience is not part of, of God. Conscience is part of me and I'm sinful. My conscience is that part of me that's that moral indicator that Makes me feel bad when I do something wrong, but how do I learn what morals, we're getting way into philosophy here, but how do I learn those things? Well, a lot of that has to do with where you're raised, who raises you, what country, what place. Different people, not everybody in the world will agree on moral absolutes. You've got people out there who feel it's okay to behead people in the name of their God, right? And then you've got other people say, well, it's okay to, to kill people for military and this and that. You've got all kinds of different moral views. There is one Holy Spirit. He's not schizophrenic. He's not confused. He ultimately will make us aware of our sin of the unbelief in Jesus Christ. One of two things happens when you sense, have you ever sensed when you were wrong? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're, the two of you find that you're both offended by the same person and you just have a good vent session and it feels really good and then you leave and you get in your car and you feel so dirty? It's the Holy Spirit making us aware that something wasn't right and it's almost unbearable. One of two things happens, the Bible says, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin your heart either gets a little harder or it gets a little softer. Because if you get into that moment and you feel bad and you know you did wrong and something, you need to take a step to make it right and you do nothing, what the Bible says is your heart got a little harder. Almost like a nerve ending dying. 
And the next time that it happens in your life, you might feel bad, but not quite as bad as you did that last time. This is how habitual sin over time, you can get to the point where you live a double life and you don't feel bad. You can be doing something that's absolutely wrong and feeling nothing about it, and that is dangerous. Our bodies aren't designed to work that way. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. And I can hurry because I can extend some of this the next week, but I think that this is important. God's kind of got me on this current this morning. I used to work in a kitchen when I went to Valley Forge. It was Valley Forge Christian College back at the time. It's University of Valley Forge now. Um, and I, I had to work to help pay my way through school, and I worked at the Desmond's Hotel and Conference Center, and I ran room service up there. And the guys played a joke on me because I was new to the kitchen. A lot of the guys in the kitchen had worked there forever, and they put these plates up in the window under a heat lamp when I was ready. And then I had to take the plate, put it on a tray, deliver it to do room service. And the first time they put one up in the window, they yelled, Philip, which is what they called me back then, because it's my full name. I just, I don't know why. Just call me Philip. Philip, it's up in the window. And I would go, the first time I grabbed that plate, I got it this far and dropped a $40 filet mignon all over the floor. That plate was so scalding hot. And, I'm, and all the guys thought it was hilarious. I guess it was kind of like a rite of passage for all the new people that worked there because they knew our fingers weren't used to it. But yet these same guys in the back could take their same bare hands like I did and just grab those plates, put them up in the window, grab those plates, put them up in the window, grab those plates. I couldn't understand it. So the first couple of weeks I was there, I'm always you know, I'm wrapping up a towel. I'm trying to get a hot, and get like an oven mitt, and like grabbing the thing, put it on there. And then I started grabbing with my bare hand and moving them quick. And then I noticed I could hold them a little longer, a little longer. A couple months in, I could grab this place just like they did. And what they told me was after a while, the nerve endings in your fingers, if you hold something too hot after a while, those nerve endings just deaden. So you can hold something that would burn someone else and you feel no pain. Do you understand that's what happens when you sin and you resist the Holy Spirit? Those nerve endings in your heart are deadening. To the point where you start to handle things you shouldn't be handling and feel no pain. And that's dangerous because you're not repenting of it. And you're thinking, I must be okay because I don't feel bad. That's dangerous. God did not design your body to have no pain impulse in situations of danger. God designed your body to feel pain and say, I should not put my hand on this sharp nail. I should remove it. If you feel no pain, you can run that nail right through there and bleed out and die. And your body sends you no signal to tell you otherwise. When you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you of a sin, do what it says in Hebrews. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Listen to him. Respond to him. Number three, the Holy Spirit, here's a big word for you, regenerates us, lives in us, and seals us if we believe. These three words are all so important. He regenerates us. That means he gives us new life. He brings us to new life, which is kind of like the crux of the whole born again terminology. Here's what Jesus says. John chapter 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him. Now watch this and doesn't recognize him. Here's important. But you will know him because he lives with you now and later the Holy Spirit will be in you. He lives with you now. But after I die on the cross and raise from the dead, breathe on you the Holy Spirit, and you accept me as Lord and Savior, I go to heaven, He will live in you. Do you understand if you are a Christian? That means that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The same Holy Spirit that was in Paul. The same Holy Spirit that was in Peter. The same Holy Spirit that was upon Jesus Christ. The same Holy Spirit that was in Reinhard Bonnke or anybody else that you look at. Benny Hinn or anybody else. 
the same Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So there's three things. He regenerates us, he lives in us, and he seals us. He regenerates us. That means he gives us new life. Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born both of water and of the Spirit. How does that happen? How can I, you know, like Nicodemus says, like he asks this gross question. He's like, do I have to crawl inside my mother's womb and be born all over again? That's gross. That's physically impossible. I don't want to do that. I'm so thankful that's not what Jesus meant. This would, Christianity would be so unstomachable and so ridiculous. That's not what he meant. He said, you have to be alive. You have to have lived, don't born of water. But you have to be born again through the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? And I can't go deep into it this week other than to tell you. It happens, it, we, we learned about it in the New Testament. It happens through the Spirit's presence. Jesus acted on this truth when on the evening of his resurrection, he breathed upon the disciples in John 20, 22. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Up until this point, up until Jesus breathes on them after his resurrection, Jesus' disciples' faith was the same as every other Old Testament saint. They looked forward to the Messiah who would come one day, but now Jesus' work was finished on the cross. He stood before the disciples with proof that it was done. Jesus breathed on them and gave them new life. How? How did he give them new life? The only way I can tell you is the way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. He says, the person who's joined together with the Lord is one together with him in spirit. The original Greek word means to fuse together with. All it means is that the moment you and I say, Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me for my sins. You are my Lord. You're my Savior. I will follow you. The moment that you say that, what happens is that the Holy Spirit, all of him, fused together with your spirit and they're one. The moment it happens. Fused together. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. He lives in us. Paul asks you, don't you realize that all of you together talking to Christians are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? In other words, he's saying, you know what? We have all these rules about the temple, the place where God's presence was in one place at one time. It's supposed to be beautiful and clean and taken care of and you know, we don't want it destroyed and we don't want it marred. And we, he says, don't you realize that God doesn't live just in a temple anymore? His Spirit lives in all of you. You're now like a temple of the Holy Spirit. What should you be talking about, thinking about, looking at? How should you look at yourself differently knowing that you're a temple? He lives inside of us. Here's the cool thing. Ephesians 1.13 tells us he seals all believers. Now, we don't do a lot of sealing of things. Maybe you could pick another word there. Uh, maybe stamp. Uh, let me think. Of, here, here's the, there's this wonderfully theological uh, movie that I love. It, um, it's made by Pixar. It's called Toy Story 2. Um, just a dynamic movie. It's changed my life. And um, I'm being sarcastic for those of you who really think I've lost it. Um, <laughs> story of Andy and his toys. How does Andy designate what toys belong to him? You know what he does? Yeah, he writes, writes his name on, on their little shoe. And there's that really cool scene in Toy Story 2 where they get the airbrush out and they're rehabbing, um, they're rehabbing Woody the cowboy and everything else. And they paint over Andy's name on his shoe. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is God writing on you that you belong to him. He uses language. He says he's the deposit, the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, is the deposit and the guarantee of your future inheritance. In other words, it's like saying the moment I get saved, I go into escrow. And God's making a deposit to say, listen, you're not getting all of heaven right now, but I want you to know that you can depend on it, that I'm going to make good on it, and here's your deposit. It's the Holy Spirit. 
Do you understand when Paul says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit that God is saying to you, the proof that I want you to know that you belong to me and my down payment and guarantee that you will be mine and have the one thing I'm doing to write my name on you is to let the Holy Spirit fuse together with you and change everything that you are to give you something that is actively connected to me at all times. Wow, it's huge. Number four, worship team, you can come back. We'll cut it right here. If you would, please. The Holy Spirit empowers us for witness. Words are not enough. The Spirit ministers the things of Jesus to us. The Lord promised that as we go out of this place today with the Holy Spirit, He'll be active in our witness and empower us for His service. There has to be a balance, friends, between the worship of the Lord and the work of the Lord. There has to be a balance. That's not all worship, it's not all church, it's not all work. There has to be a balance between worship and work. It's never the purpose of God to simply have the Holy Spirit stir us on Sunday morning and then leave us there. The Holy Spirit's task is to give us strength in this moment of worship when we come together on Sunday so we can go out in power to do the work of the Lord. Here's the reality. If you're like me, you spend most of your life working. Right? Spend more time with work or with your family. Work. For most of us, not all of us. I'll tell you, I spend more time at work than with my family. I spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a week at work, going to work, coming from work, being at home with my family, thinking about work, being at home with my family, having work come to my cell phone, having work show up at my front door. Do you understand that God never intended your place of work to exist independently of your witness for him? Do you understand that the way that you and I work is every bit an act of worship to God? The way that you and I relate to people, the way that we relate to our tasks, the excellence. He created us with gifts and abilities and talents to be able to work and take care of ourselves and provide for our needs. Those things are interrelated. And I want you to understand what we hope to happen here on Sunday morning, you know, is when you can, I mean, look, life has beat us all up all week. You don't need your pastor to beat you up on Sunday morning. I want you to be able to come here Sunday morning and hear the word of the Lord to you that will encourage you, that will strengthen you. I want you to connect deeply with Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to worship because guess what happens? One of the other things the Holy Spirit does is he prompts us to worship. The Holy Spirit prompts us to worship and encourages us. And when we worship, our will is being filled back up for what? For the ministry that happens when we leave this place. For the ministry that happens in the restaurants and on the softball field. And God knows our softball team needs ministry on the softball field and to to your place of work, to your home, to your community, to your neighborhoods. When we come together on Sunday morning, it's so that we can lift our voices together and worship Jesus and that he can fill us with his power and his presence and empower us to witness when we leave here for the bulk of our life. The bulk of our life doesn't happen here. These chairs are too hard for you to sit here most of your life. But the purpose why we come together is to make room for the Holy Spirit. Pastor, I want more of the Holy Spirit in my life. You have exactly as much of Him in your life as you want. No more, no less. At this moment, you have exactly as much of God's presence in your life as you want. No more, no less. Pastor, how do I experience more of this? How do I hear Jesus more clearly through His Spirit? How do I know better about Jesus? His Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit also helps you to understand and apply the written Word of God. He helps us. He's not just the one who inspired it. He makes it inspirational still. 
Well, how do I get more of him? Well, the Bible is simple. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. I must increase, or I must decrease so he can increase. You have to make room. You have to make space. You have to make a way. We make room for, I don't have time. We make room for all kinds of stuff. For gaming, for trolling YouTube and Facebook and social media, for the Kardashians. We make time for all kinds of stuff. Will you make room for the Holy Spirit this morning? Let's pray. Just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in and singing some worship to Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we're bowing our heads here, we have about 10 minutes before we typically dismiss. As we're bowing our heads and we're just kind of thinking about maybe the next step that we need to take based on what we heard this morning, I want to invite our prayer team to come and just find their places up here. I want you to think very carefully, what do I need to do with what I just heard? I don't have any delusions as your pastor that you're going to remember everything that I said even 15 minutes from now. I won't remember everything I said 15 minutes from now. But there might be that one thing that when you heard it today, the Holy Spirit himself kind of wrote it in Sharpie on your spirit. And I want to pray that that comes back to your mind right now. Is it something you need to change? Is it something you need to start? Is it something you want to stop? Is it something that you need? Is it something you need to act on? Maybe for some of you, it was, I need a relationship with Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I want to be a disciple. That's what I've been missing. I want to exchange the life I've been living for a life that would honor and please God. Friend, that's the whole reason we're here. I remember when I made that decision in my life, everybody that's on the platform here with me this morning, Chris and our entire team, they've all made that decision. All of our prayer team, every one of our children's workers, everybody who serves in a volunteer or leadership capacity here, Julie and our whole tech team, everybody else, they've all made that decision in their life. And we're not perfect by any means. But it started with a moment like what you have in front of you right now. What are you going to do with what you've heard today about Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived the sinless life that none of us lived but should have lived, who died the death that we deserved, and he didn't, but he did it anyway. And he was raised from the dead, saying that my past has changed because it can be forgiven. My present has changed because I don't have a dead Savior. I've got one I can live with and interact with. And my future has changed because it's not just he who collects the most toys, dies, and then he wins. It's because my future is in Jesus Christ. I'm going to get a new body. I'm going to live in a rehabbed heaven and a rehabbed earth with a rehabbed body with my Savior forever and ever and ever. If you want it, it's right in front of you this morning. You just have to believe it and you have to confess it to God and say, this is what I want. How do I do it? I'll walk you through it right now. Right in your seat. You say with your mouth. You can whisper it to God. A simple prayer that says, dear Jesus, I need you. I have sinned. I'm aware of it. Please forgive me for my sins. I accept your death on the cross as payment for my sins. I invite you into my life. I will make you first. And from now on, I will follow you. I welcome your Holy Spirit to live inside of me and to begin transforming me one moment at a time, one day at a time. In your mighty name I pray, amen. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, what you're experiencing right now is the Holy Spirit in all of heaven filling you with all that is God.
And the most important thing that you can do is not keep that a secret. I'm not saying you have to do what Peter did and go down to Chick-fil-A or, well, they're closed on Sunday, but go to another restaurant that is open and stand up on the table and tell everybody what happened. But I do want you to tell somebody. Your Connect card is a great way you can do that. You can just write your name on there and there's a box in there that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus today or I was walking far from him and I made a decision to reconnect with Jesus today. I invite you to come to Discover Echo next Sunday at 1135 and I'll give you the next steps for how we're going to help you become a disciple of Jesus Christ and we're going to help you make this commitment something that you walk through for the rest of your life. That's the next step for you and I'll be there to help you walk along every single step of the way.